Matthew 26, beginning with verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Amen. This is the word of the living and true God. Let's ask for his help now as we consider this portion of his word. And it's preaching this morning. Let's pray. Father, as we come again to the, this, your word, which is infallible, it's inerrant, it's inspired, not of men, but of the Spirit, who moved men to write that which you would have us know. We pray that as we approach this text, words that we hear every week in this place, that may we have a whole new understanding, even appreciation, for the meal that's before us today. And so may we eat and drink deeply from this portion of your word. May your spirit guide us, we ask, for Christ's sake. Amen. Every day in our lives, and not a day, in fact, goes by that you and I don't use items, modern day conveniences, from indoor plumbing to the technology of the internet and more, All these things are given to us to make our lives easier. They are means, of course, given that we might do and enjoy various things. Imagine what it would be like if we had to go back in time and live in the days of old in which we had to do our laundry at the riverbank or drive, perhaps, to an office to pay our bills. No, indeed, we have all these conveniences. They're given to us. They're means to make our lives somewhat easier. And in much the same way, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is just that. It is a means. A means for what? A means for what purpose? Why was it given? Why did God, in His wisdom, give this very simple meal to His church? Well, He gave it that we might have a means of grace that unmerited favor given to us by virtue of that which Jesus Christ has done to help us not pay our bills or surf the Internet or 
do our laundry so much, but to help us in the journey called life, this life, that each one of you as redeemed people are currently walking. It's called a sacrament, as we call it. It's one of the two sacraments of the New Testament because it communicates a mysterious yet real presence of Christ by His Spirit whenever we participate at this table that is before you today. It is that which reminds us, reminds you, at least it should, reminds you of the sufferings of Christ, His death, our need for daily repentance upon the cross of Christ and dependence upon the cross of Christ. They graciously call sinners to feed on the body of Christ and drink of His blood, all symbols of the once given sacrifice that accomplished redemption in the life of God's people, reversing very much the effects of the fall and renewing grace in the hearts of those who by faith participate at this meal. Needless to say, it's an important thing. One of the most important things in the life of the church. Underneath the rubric and umbrella of the Word of God preached, we have this table. You may wonder why that table's down there and I'm up here. Well, it's not because it's just convenient that you get to see me a little easier standing up here. There's nothing great to look at, frankly. I'd like to be behind a shield. It's up here because the Word of God is above you and it is above me. And it's from the Word of God that that table is given to us. It is where we find the instructions for it as we find the reasons for it. We find all of the necessary components about it. Where do we find all that? We find it in the infallible Word. This is why we preach before we do the Lord's Supper. And in fact, you must always remember the Word of God must be proclaimed before this meal is is celebrated. But as you come to this meal, as you think about it, as we do every week in this place, the danger, of course, for us is that it becomes very commonplace, routine, which, frankly, there's really nothing wrong with routines. But if that's all it is for you and for me, then we miss the whole point of why it's given. What do you think about when you come to this meal? As you approach it, what do you allow your mind to meditate on? This week... No surprise, we're doing the Lord's Supper. We do it weekly here, and of which I'm very thankful for, as you know. But this week, what did you give your thought to when it comes to the celebration? And that's indeed what it is, a celebration. Uh, what did you think about as you prepare? Did you even prepare your heart and mind to once again to accept the Savior's gracious offering to come to Him, all who are weary and heavy laden? Did you examine yourself, children? Did you examine yourself, mom and dad? Did you examine yourself, older of the congregation, our senior statesmen, of your standing in Christ, of any sin that has not been rightly dealt with, that which is known? 
Parents, have you encouraged your children uh, as they have been admitted to this table to do just those things? That's your job, indeed, to help them learn how to do these things. Did you renew your love to Christ? As you approach this table today, will you renew your love to Him? Did you pray that the eternal Spirit would use this means of grace in your life and the life of this body of believers to strengthen all of us in this pilgrimage? You see, this meal wasn't given to you to add 10, 15 minutes to the end of the worship service because Jesus wants to keep us in this room longer. He gave it to us as a tremendous act of grace to daily, weekly keep us framed around the gospel of which this table represents most clearly. The context is obvious. You know what it is. You know your Bibles. The cross is imminent. Everything that this table represents is there in Jesus' future. The very broken body of Christ is about to happen. The very thorns, the crown of thorns placed upon his head. The blood rushing down his face. The imagery of the torn flesh from his back. From the strikes of the soldiers. The nails driven through either his hands or through his wrist, depending on how you read that passage. The suffering, really, of the eternal wrath of a sovereign, holy God upon Him for you and for me. It's all in Jesus' future as He gives this, as He gives this meal to His disciples. Now it's in our past, isn't it? Christ is about to face the most difficult time of His earthly life in ways that you and I will never, ever, ever understand. In order for you to understand, you would have to be Him. And you never will be Him. What awaits the Savior is what this table pictures. He gives it to us. He gives it to us in the context of that Old Testament sacrament, the very Passover that pictures, of course, Him as the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And so this morning, with God's help, I want to show you this gracious meal. I know you know it in that you participate at it every week. I know you know what it means and its elements. I'm going to show it to you anyway. And you're going to have to work hard to try to hear this as though you've never heard it before. That you might grow strength from it as a means of grace in your life. I'm going to show you this gracious meal given by your Savior to assure you of His love for you and His eventual coming again to bring you to where He is. I'm going to show you this meal, a gracious meal. 
given to you by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, to assure you, to strengthen you, to help you in this journey you're on, you and I are on, to remind us of his love and his eventual coming to bring you to where he is. Two points, they're not complicated. There's the setting of the meal itself and the administration of it that follows. The setting, what provoked Christ to do this, to give this to the church and replace that meal that had dominated the church for many centuries previous, and then the administration and the various actions that take place and all that they picture right here, and that we'll see today as we participate at this gracious meal. Let's first consider the setting. Jesus gives to us uh, the setting, or Matthew, more to the point, gives to us the setting there in verse 26. You don't really even have to necessarily know the entirety of the chapter to know the setting, but verse 26 provokes an, an investigation. It states plainly right there, the opening words of it, now as they were eating. Eating what? Well, eating the Passover. The very words that precede the administration of what now replaces the Passover. Here, as they are eating the Passover meal, Jesus gives to them this new Passover meal. Now you might think, well, what's the big deal? What's the connection? Is it so radically different from the old sacrament of the Passover meal and this one here now? Well, it is, and it isn't. You remember the events of the Passover. If you remember your Bibles well, you remember beginning roughly around Exodus 7 or so, we have the, the, the calamity of the, uh, the people of God of old there in Israel. They are enslaved, that, that place that is really in a biblical theological theme, a, a place of sin, the misery. That's where you and me were prior to Christ. And you remember all the signs that were performed by God himself through the mediator Moses, a type of Christ, and all those ten signs or plagues, if you will. And we get all the way down to the end, the death of the firstborn, that most traumatic sign. And through that, God institutes this Passover meal. Why? Because it represents the work of redemption. It represents that which would free the people from what? From their misery, their slavery, their bondage, their sin. And through the blood then was spilled by the lamb, placed on the doorpost of the house, and the death angel would pass over. All of it is a picture of what? Jesus Christ. For that is what Paul so plainly tells us. That he is the Passover lamb. He is, as John the Baptist said, he is the lamb slain. Here comes the the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Here he is. His name is Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. The Passover meal pictured it. And now, here, now he gives in person and in elements the fulfillment of everything the Passover was communicating. Simpler, easier to grasp. 
The setting is the Passover meal. It was a meal that was shared by families. It is to say, it's a family meal. Note that they were present with the Savior at the Passover. Who's the they? The disciples. This is not an event that takes place individually. We do it as a family. Even in the days of old in the Old Testament economy, under the rubric of the Old Testament church, the Passover meal was celebrated by families. It was celebrated by the people of God. It was the most important feast of the entire congregation of the church of old. And it was celebrated together. We too, we celebrate this together. We note the people that are present here at this meal. Christ, of course, is there, and interestingly, and according to the Matthew account anyway, the twelve are present as well. Now, you might wonder, well, why are you mentioning that? That's like, duh, no kidding. Because Judas is too. He is present as a good Jew, perhaps, a circumcised Jew going through the outward Actions of the Passover meal, uh, a Jew outwardly but not inwardly, the son of perdition, the one who would betray Jesus Christ. It goes out of its way there to tell us that in context that he is present at the meal. But he is no closer to salvation and understanding of the meal that is before you and me than the ungodly of the world today. What does this teach us? It teaches us that this meal, as a family meal, is not for the world. Jesus didn't give this to the world. This is not for them. He was selective in who he offered it to. He gives it to those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. It is for those who are members of the visible church, just as Judas was a member of the visible church. It's for God's people, publicly represented. It's for those who have made a public profession of faith. Members of the visible church, daily repenting of known sin, doing all of the things that you hear every single Lord's Day, give or take, from behind that table. What do we learn from this? Judas was a member of the church, but he was not a member of the church. I know that sounds like a contradiction. It is not a contradiction. He came unworthily. He came arrogantly. He came deceptively. He came as an enemy of the gospel, not a friend. He came, though. He participated. He was present at it. What about you? 
Every Lord's Day, you hear the words of institution. This is a family meal. It's given to a family, a family of believers, those who have made a public profession of faith. Do you possess faith? Outwardly, the tray goes by, and you, of course, because uh, you know no one wants to be embarrassed, no one wants to be ashamed, no one wants to think twice about you, so you take it, though you know in your heart that you are no closer to Christ than Judas. You're eating and drinking judgment to yourself. You see, you're intruding on the family meal. Do you know this Savior who has offered it to His people? The elders do the best they can. Of course they do. We do the best we can to ascertain whether your profession of faith is credible. But, you know, I can't see your heart. Jesus had a unique way, however, with Judas He could tell. He knew. Not even the other disciples knew who it was. But Jesus did. We don't have that gift. This is why every Lord's Day you're warned from behind that table. You're warned to examine yourself, to see, are you in the faith? Do you know Christ? Are you leaning upon Him alone for salvation and nothing else? If that's true of you, then you celebrate with the rest of your family right here at this table. Just like those other 11 disciples were, minus the one who wasn't part of the family. It's a family meal. It belongs to the children of God. It belongs to those that Jesus Christ, in a few short days, is going to offer His life for. He knew who He was dying for. It wasn't some random number in his head. Well, is it 6,727,219 people, whatever. I messed that up, but you get it. No, no, he knew that he died for, for you and for you and for you and for you. He knew your name. When he gave this meal to his 12 disciples, he gave it to you by name because he was going to accomplish all that was pictured at this table. It's a family meal. It's also a covenant meal. It's a meal that carries forward all that the history of redemption throughout the Bible has been screaming towards ever since man fell in the garden. Ever since that that moment in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, when God, in an act of incredible grace and kindness, instead of wiping out Adam and Eve from the face of the earth and being done with them and us, He says, look, in the face of your misery, I'm going to give you hope. Here it is. Through the seed of the woman will come a one who will reverse all of this mess that you have plunged humanity into. As we read and we see through the annals of Scripture and we consider all of that is written about Christ and Him crucified, which the Bible is about, we see it getting closer and closer. And in the fullness of time, the covenant is fully ratified by the Savior Himself, a meal that carries forward the very history of redemption. 
in every promise made to the patriarchs and to Christ himself, that I will be your God and you will be my people. In the sense in which we have pictured as this table sits here, no, not in the direct center of the room, but regardless, it sits in the center of our lives. As God sits in the center of our lives. It reminds us that the gospel isn't something we just say one time and never talk about again, but it's that covenant truth that we constantly reflect on. And we remind one another about the need of the cross and the need of Christ and the need of his blood and the need of redemption and the need of remission of sin. For what are you counting on when you confess your sin every Lord's Day in this place? Are you counting on you? Or are you counting on the blood of Christ to wash it away? Parents, you should remind your children of these things. That though we do it on the Lord's Day, and a covenant expression to the God of heaven is, is not just for the Lord's Day, this is for every day. It is for every moment of every day. And it reminds us that we lean upon Christ and Him crucified every moment of our lives. Well, so much for the setting. A setting that highlights for us a greater Passover meal, a family meal, a covenant meal. Jesus begins then to give in very simple terms. Very simple terms. A child can understand these things. I've heard them say it to us as elders in the church as we ask them, what does the bread mean? And they say, and what does the cup mean? And they say, simple terms that a child can understand. In some sense, a great picture of the gospel that anybody can understand it if the Spirit of God will only open their eyes to it. And so this is not one of those passages that the confession of faith says is a little difficult, more hard to understand. This is very simple things, maybe too simple, that it loses its luster. It loses its uniqueness. It loses its treasure. It loses something. May it not be so. As we hear things that you've heard many times, Jesus administers it. He first takes the bread. Presumably the bread that was sitting there from the Passover meal, just sitting on the table. It wasn't like they brought it in special. It wasn't like the Housley boys went out and got it and brought it into them like we do here. They were participating in a Passover meal, and Jesus just seized the opportunity. He reaches across the table. He grabs this loaf of bread. Notice what Matthew tells us as they were eating, Jesus took bread. Now, one commentator is very helpful here as he unpacks for us some salient insights into these actions that Jesus Christ engages in front of, in living color, the disciples. This is why we don't do this over Zoom and other things. You remember what our larger catechism says, those of you who have been here on Wednesday nights. I'm resisting. What does question 174 tell us about what we should be doing when we come to this table? Well, I'm going to tell you what it says. 
is required of them that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, that during the time of the administration of it, with all holy reverence and attention, they wait upon God in that ordinance. And here it is. This is what the focus is of this passage. Diligently observe the sacramental elements and actions. It's easy, isn't it, to just read right over the words because we've heard them so many times. He took, he took the bread. Deliberate intention. Particular, specific, on purpose. Not haphazard, not random. He took it as he who is the chosen one of Israel. He took bread as that one who alone can accomplish salvation for his people. As the one who is the substitute for his people. For we know that that bread is his body. No, not in the sense of Luther. Not in the sense of Rome. But in the spiritual sense as a figure, a representative, an element For there he is holding the loaf. It certainly could not have been him. He is the alone substitute for his people. The one who was incarnated in the flesh as that body, as that bread represents him. One who was made man that he then taking to himself flesh would rescue men from their sin. He took the bread, particularly and specifically, that might represent him in his fullness, in his body as a man incarnated with humanity. And like nature, like us, yet without sin, he did this, he blessed it, he says. It says, Matthew says to us, he blessed it. You might think, well, you know, and it, you know, we, we pray at every meal. Well, this is really the idea. He, he gives a, a eulogy about the bread. He prays. This action is offered uh, at both points in the administration of the sacrament, both the bread and the cup. It's interesting, we don't do that. I sometimes wonder if we should. He gave thanks. Before the Passover meal, Christ gave thanks. Now he does so again, signaling a change in emphasis within the meal itself. A difference now. A different approach. A different understanding. A better thing. A prayer to God for the meal. A prayer to God that these common elements would be set apart for a holy use to the benefit and nourishment of those who participate by faith. I'm required to do that by the BCO. Do I really need to be required? Shouldn't we want to? We want God's blessing upon this bread, which represents the body of Christ, but it's still just bread. We want God to take it from its common use to a holy use. We want it to be effectual in the lives of the people that participate by faith. We want the Spirit of God to do the work, because the bread's not doing anything. 
We pray. We plead for the Spirit to bless that which He said He would bless. It's not a common thing to do. It's not just ordinary. This is important. We want the blessing of God, the Holy Spirit, upon it. He took the bread. He blessed it. He broke it. Didn't have to. He could have done something else. He could have just handed it out and let them do it. But he did it. He broke it. We do that. I do that. More to the point. Why? To add more time to the service. No. Because Jesus did. But, but why? That's, that's not enough. That's not enough. Jesus did it, so I'm just doing what Jesus did. That's not enough. Why is it important that we have this visible action that signals events that will soon take place within even hours as Jesus here is giving it in this chapter? Because just as the bread is broken, and here it's in head of the cross, but now today it's after the cross, just as the bread is broken, so was the Savior broken for the sin of His people. It's easy, isn't it, to go right to the physical qualities of this brokenness, of which it certainly is part. But it's far more than that. In a few short hours, this Savior who's instituting this meal for the good of His sinful disciples, who He's going to the cross to rescue, and you and me, and by extension of them, is going to cry out from that cross, Why have you forsaken me? body that was hanging on that cruel place in which people were mocking him. Isaiah 53 and verses 10 and 11. All of it, of course, to fulfill the grand prophecies of the Old Testament and the coming of the Messiah, the Redeemer, who would undo the effects and curse of the fall. But why? Why is this all happening? Why is he breaking this bread? What is it picturing for us? Well, Isaiah 53, verses 10 and 11, if these aren't the most, one of the, some of the most striking verses about the intention of God the Father to rescue sinners, I don't know what, you can't find me another verse. What do those words say? It was the will of the Lord. That's Jehovah, by the way. It is the covenant name. It is the will of the Lord to crush him. To crush him. It was the will of God the Father, all holy as he was, that he might crush his son bodily, Otherwise, he has put him to grief. And a soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. He breaks the bread. Picturing not merely the events of the cross, but all that Jesus Christ suffered.
All of it. This active and passive obedience, theological geek speak, from the moment of his conception to the moment of his ascension, every moment of his life, every second of it was an it was anguish for the Son of God, the perfect Lamb, to walk among sinners that he was going to save who were going to kill him. That's what he's doing. That's what he's picturing for you. It happens in a moment. But in that moment, the whole history of redemption is unfolding in the tearing of the bread. does it in his suffering in this life, and he does it at the cross where the Savior bore the sins of his people. Did he bear your sins? Did he go to the cross for you? Was his body broken for you? It pleased the Father. Pleased him. No father in this room would say these words. But it pleased the Father to crush his son. That he might rescue sinful people. You tell me. If there is more grace that can be given You show me where it is. He broke the bread. He took it. He blessed it. He broke it. He didn't hold on to it, did he? He didn't clutch it as his own. He gave it to his disciples. He gave it. He offered it to them freely. Simply handed it to them. We do that here. We picture that, don't we? And the best we can, uh, he had 12 men. It probably went around the table in some capacity. They probably ripped it off. The loaf that was shattered, he maybe separated. Went one left hand that went that way and the other side went that way. We don't know. But we know that they, partake, they partook of one loaf from one body, picturing one body. We, we do that here. In symbol and form, as we pass it around the room, it's a free offer of grace to the recipients. The words I, I use frequently, not always, but frequently at the meal. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. These disciples are troubled. They have heard he's going to leave, and, and all these things are going on, and they're burdened. With the events of their own life, their sin, and he gives to them freely this meal. You see, in the broken Savior, in the words of one commentator, in the broken Savior is the eternal peace that is offered to all who will believe, even Judas. Jesus knew. But he offered it to many. How many times do you think Judas heard the gospel? In the three and a half years of his walking with Christ. And refused the free offer of, of hope. He offers it not to perfect people. Every one of those disciples, hard-headed knuckleheads. Most of the time, before you judge them too quickly, just remember, 
They didn't have what you have. You have the Spirit. What's your excuse? Regardless, he offers it to sinners. This table is not offered to perfect people because there are no perfect people. This table isn't offered because you have any divine right to be there except for the fact that Jesus Christ, who broke, was broken for you, invites you to it. And that's why we go, because we trust him. He gives this bread freely to any who can hear it, or any can eat of it, and to any that respond to him. Well, then the cup. Two parts of the sacrament, right? The bread and the cup. All that is true regarding the bread is true regarding the cup. But there are some additional things to observe. First, he commands the disciples to eat or to drink. Take that, Rome. For centuries, the Roman church withheld the cup from the people. I guess they can't read. He commands them to drink. He commands you to as well. He commands you to believe what that cup pictures, that without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. No, that cup isn't going to save you. That wine in there isn't going to save you. Trust in Christ does. He commands you to believe that through the spilled blood of Christ, salvation is, poss- is, is a reality for you. For without the shedding of that blood, there can be no remission of sin. Just like in the Passover meal. Now in this meal, he commands the disciples to drink. Those who have tasted of the bread are to drink of the cup. Those who have tasted of the death of Christ are to enjoy the fruit of the remission of sin brought about by his blood. He gives reasons to drink of this cup. First, he says it's his blood. Again, sorry, Luther, sorry, Rome. This is not literally his blood. Frankly, it's repugnant to think so. It flies in the face of common sense. For if this is his blood, what did he do? Pull out a knife and stab himself and fill up the glass? Clearly it's not. It's the wine that was present at the Passover meal. In fact, it's clear from the language and the structure that that's what it is. But it does picture something far more than what it is. It's his blood, not literally, symbolic. It represents the shedding of blood with which there be no remission of sin. It is the blood of the covenant, as Jesus himself states. Thus keeping, isn't it? Keeping the connection of this covenant meal in unity with that of which the Passover meal pictured. 
A great reversal of the fall when man was exiled from the presence of God is about to be reversed through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, this is in his future, but in our past. We look backwards and we say, the fall has been reversed because of what Jesus did. They are looking forward to the fact that it will be reversed because of what Jesus will do. He will shed his blood. He has shed his blood covenant connection that that completes the circle of what Jesus what God told our first parents blood that is spilled notice for many I don't know what to do with that I don't know what that means it means more than few many is bigger than few whatever that is whatever that number is It's fixed in eternity. Whoever they are, it's for them. So the twelve, the eleven disciples here, through you, if you know Christ today, blood that was spilled, not for a few, but for many, but not everyone either. Notice Jesus doesn't say it's for everyone but many. So much for universalism. So much for Arminianism. So much for all that other nonsense that has troubled the church. It's right here. Blood that was shed for many. For the forgiveness of sins. A blood, a cup, that not only for us causes us to look backwards upon what Jesus did, but a cup that causes us to look forward as well. You might think, well, where are you you getting that from? Well, it's right there in the text. What's the last words of, of this passage? I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day, future, when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Every time we come to this table, we are pronouncing our trust that Jesus Christ, who has departed in His first advent, His first coming, will return. He's going to come back. We will eat of this meal with Him in glory. We proclaim, we rest, and we draw comfort from the fact that not only are our sins forgiven, but there is something great awaiting us as the people of God. That place that no eye has seen and ear heard. But even that pales in comparison to the fact of the comfort that comes knowing that we will eat of this meal with the one who gave it. Because of him, we will eat with him. Now, if that doesn't encourage you, I don't know what would. Every Lord's Day, when we take of this meal, 
we are drawing hope from the words that Jesus gave those beleaguered men. I'm coming again. I'm going to eat with you. You are mine. You will never be lost. Meal is for you. As it was for those 11 men. The meal is yours. It's given to you. You know Christ today, that's your table. By virtue of the invitation of He who gives it. Just as you would not scorn, I hope, an invitation to go to someone's house. And you have right to be there now. Why? Because you were invited into that home. You too now have right to the table. Not because of you, but because of the one who invited you. The host. The gracious host. A meal that graciously given to the church. He graciously gives it to you and for you. Because here, it's really a picture of Jesus giving all of himself to you. All of him was given for you. Perpetual reminder of his love for you and your need of him. Every week, we are reminded, at least you ought to be, of your dependence upon Christ. Every, in this place anyway, every single week. And whether churches do it weekly, monthly, yearly, quarterly, whatever it is, they still are dependent upon Christ. But this meal calls you to remember all that Jesus Christ did. So as you come to this meal today, you'll look at me. Even the elements themselves, you see what happens, you see the movements and the actions as we've already discussed. You need to see Jesus. You need to see Him administering this meal. You need to see what He did. You need to see what He is doing. You need to see what He will do. You need to look to Him. You trust Him. There's no magic here. You trust the Spirit of God to bless it to your heart and mind. As He does, you will be strengthened. You're strengthened with the entire history of God's redemptive work for you to bring you to this hour, this place, to eat of this meal. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for this covenant meal that you have given, so simple as it is. But oh, what a picture it gives us. The picture of the entire history of your work. May we renew our strength. May we come and see. May we come and eat. May we come and feed. May we, by faith, believe that what you offer us, we ask for Christ's sake. Amen.